he tweeted that thing with the when he was talking about a black oh, footballer, footballer, and he's like, "Oh, it reminds me of a guy selling like uh, sunglasses on the beach." Oh yeah. my god! And uh, everyone was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And then he was like, "Oh, not say anything anymore." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's why he's not putting black people on. Yeah. Because he's a dirty old racist man. Welcome to Black in a Box. The world has told my black face is in white spaces, and we have another guest. <laughs> Woohoo! Long awaited. Long fabled. Long fabled. I didn't always believe that Don was going to pull through and convince you to come on. Joanna, they didn't think that we were actually friends. Yeah, we thought it was all talk. <laughs> no, really? Me and Don go way back. Way back. How much did he pay you to say that? <laughs> <laughs> Only about quid. Uh. You, you're way more expensive than it used to be. <laughs> mm. But, I mean, going by the last few people Don's brought on, they end up being like regulars on the pod. So, you Alana. know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you're going to get your own seat. Who knows? How are you, Joanna Jaju? I'm good, thank you. How are you all? Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. I'm a couple of days out from a stag. I am very rough. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> my, my voice was a bit a bit raspy, but, you know, we're back to, I'd say, about 85, 90% today. You should have kept it. That's good for the audio. I, well, yeah, I didn't have much choice. You know, <laughs> there was a lot of symptoms of, of, of abuse of my, of my, of my body, but we're, we're good to go. Dom, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. Settled into the new place. Life is good. Mm. Very nice. Mm. Very nice place. Thank you. Yeah, exposed red brick. It is. Which it is, is never you know, too far away. It is. Oh, wow. Topical. Topical, and we'll get into that later. So, I guess today's main topic, our overarching theme, is the rise of the black middle class. And that's something which we've wanted to talk about. It's something which we've skirted on a number of different times in different episodes and different topics. And how do you orient your sort of life and your career towards achieving that is it, is it necessarily something which you should aspire to what are the benefits and and and, and costs of doing so and this is a, a sort of nice run on from the sort of epi- episode we did with Simeon a couple of uh, episodes ago where the book is flying off the shelves as well by the way mm. yeah well it's it should be should be mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a nice follow-on where he was talking about mainly about influencing, but also sort of the costs of people sort of chasing that um, that sort of this idea we have of, of black excellence and and um, this sort of hustler mentality. Um, so yeah, we wanted to get someone who is an established sort of businesswoman in her, her own right, someone who also has, has had dabbled, dabbled. I will I will say in uh, sort of reality television although it was you know it, it i guess calling it that it's highbrow reality television mm. yeah and calling it in that is is, is unfair because it, 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 you cast yeah. for a reason and they just make reality out of that i would say yeah that's a good way of looking at it curated reality curated reality i guess you know before we dive into it if you had to go on to a show that's a reality show what would you go on to so with you, Alana. Oh, I <laughs> RuPaul's Drag Race. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Good answer. As a person judging, as a contestant, as probably not as a contestant, I'm not as um, talented as they are, but in some capacity beyond that show. I would be, and I'm not just saying this uh, because you're here, Joanna, I'd be either The Apprentice or I always wanted to be on Wayne Rooney's skill school when I was a kid. I really wanted to go on that. Um, but yeah, one of those two. I think I'd be good on The Apprentice, but I think everyone that goes on The Apprentice thinks they'd be good on it. Mm. But I question whether I'm... But I question whether I'd be enough of an arsehole. Uh, <laughs> <the thing> is, <laughs> what are you trying to say, Dom? Is that the main criteria? <laughs> I'm not saying anything. I, the thing is, I would love to see you pushed. I think you'd be, you'd be, you'd think you'd be nice. I'd love to see you pushed into a corner because mm. I think that is when, when someone tries to drop you in it, <laughs> After the task has failed, I I would honestly the, the television they would get out of that. That's when the light dom dies, <laughs> and the, the patois comes out. <laughs> oh, How about you, Dan? Um, uh, so I'm I, I am an old man. So I'm, I'm 34 on Sunday. So I'm old enough to remember like the original shipwrecked. I don't know if any of you like guys saw it uh, like before they had the sort of Battle of the Islands, and I'd always say that. Okay. Um, but yeah, it'd be that. <laughs> I can't be coming out here embarrassing my family. It can't be anything where I get too famous, you know? <laughs> you know? You, you got your Love Island pictures done when we were in, oh, uh, wow. <laughs> in Portugal last they year. Popping, though. They're still going. <laughs> they are still going for me. <laughs> Joanna, other than the show you went on, would you go on another show and what would it be? Um, I think, to be honest, before I went on The Apprentice, it, would have, it wouldn't have been any other reality show that I would have gone on is probably the only one just because I think it's the one that fits my personality the most mm. and before I went on it I was like even more kind of corporate um so I don't think I think my life outside of work most people will probably think yeah she'd probably go on Live Island or like one of my friends <laughs> would probably think that but that would actually be career suicide wouldn't it so um yeah, yeah I don't know it's hard to kind of say what else I'd go on I would like to think that I'd challenge myself to something like a shipwrecked or, mm. you know, that Bear grills the island yeah. just because you think, oh, I'm going to be somewhere tropical and it's going to be amazing and hopefully I'm not going to make a fool out of myself yeah. or do anything silly. But at the same time, I don't think I've even got enough discipline really to go on something like that and I'd be crying by the second day. So. <laughs> so my, my issue with those like Bear grills ones is it's television, it's not real life. So when there's some ex-soldier shouting in my face, I couldn't tell. I couldn't take that seriously. I'd be like, "Big man, stop! Like, what are you shouting at me for? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is not real." And that would just he'd just then be on you more, and it's just. And a, then he'd be like, "I'm leaving." It's just like, a, what are you it's doing? a spiral. It's just a spiral. Well, there are rules, you know. Mm. I ain't following them. <laughs> then you're not good. You're not suited for the job. <laughs> like, no, I'm a celebrity. I'd be saying it straight away. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> get me out of there. Oh, oh episode one. <laughs> episode literally. one. Dom's gone. Get your bag and leave. Yeah. I, I'm just thankful um, that whoever it was, someone knew, like a production a production manager, I guess, and I kept getting stitched up and they kept giving away my email and, and contact details. And the the low point was when they were trying to get me on like Farmer Wants a Wife. <laughs> <laughs> So that was, was I was channel five. I don't know what it was. So I was trying to get me to like date someone in like uh, like Pembrokeshire or something. I was like, how is this ever going to work? <laughs> I live in London. Like, how is this? How is this going to work anyway? And they were like, well, you know, 
No, not happening. <laughs> I think I've changed my mind, and I don't know if this classes as a reality show, but one thing that I would do is come down with me. Oh, oh. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to be on that. How fun would that be? The funny thing is that, like, that doesn't, that doesn't really get viewed in the same way, does it? it it's doesn't. just like... But it is some of the best TV that the uh, UK has ever produced. Oh, you know and what? And it is a reality show. Is is Gogglebox a reality show? What what is Gogglebox? I don't know what that is. But yeah, I think I that is that reality. Is. Gogglebox is the one above everything that I mm. want to be on. But I'd be cancelled within seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the one where you have to guess if someone's a real person, like whether no, they're really... No, they just watch TV. <laughs> oh, They okay. just watch TV. <laughs> I don't watch TV reality show. TV show so. about people watching TV shows. Mm. Mm. It's very meta. So, I want to wheel it right up, right up to your roots in Gambia. And from there to yeah. arriving in Wakefield, that journey for you. And, and how you sort of felt then moving on to, you know, to getting into university. It's obviously me and Dom are from Home Firth. And we've spoken previously about our experiences in Home Firth. Every time, like, we, we could, like even now, stepping off the train and then like getting in it's a different world you never know what to expect and yet you know exactly what to expect um so yeah just be it'd be interesting to hear your experience as a, as a black woman sort of growing up in, in shaky wakey and um yeah how that sort of oriented your sort of life experiences going forward do you know what it's really weird because um the age that i moved to the uk was <clears throat> six years old and obviously at that age you kind of know what's happening and you also don't mm. really know what's happening. You don't know what to expect. Mm. Um, so little things like I'd never seen snow before and <laughs> I literally remember the first time I kind of ran outside like, oh, it's snowing, <laughs> you know, from things that you'd seen from um, movies and stuff like that when I was back in Gambia, but then only to kind of have the anticlimax that when I touched it, it was actually ice and it wasn't the, no <laughs> it wasn't the kind of big, amazing like winter wonderland that I was expecting. Um, but I mean, it wasn't, it was a massive shift obviously from moving from uh, Gambia to the UK, but it kind of started off okay. And then I kind of started to struggle because a lot of my experience of being in the UK overall from literally being six years old and being in uh, primary school yeah. right through to uni has been in really predominantly white backgrounds. Yeah. And I'm sure that Dom, <laughs> you probably uh, relate to that yeah, a lot. And um, so it was little things like hair, you know, like a lot of things that black women go through anyway across the UK, but I think it's always a lot more heightened when you are in an environment where you're the only black kid um, in the class or even sometimes in the school. Um, and it was tough. And for me, I moved uh, to the UK just with my mum. So it was very single mother, just me and her trying to navigate. And she was literally 28 years old, the age that I'm at now. Yeah. And it Lindsay. just blows my mind thinking, how can you move from like an African country by yourself with a six year old, not knowing what's going on and trying to navigate that whole situation in, a, uh, in an environment where there's not really a big black community and a big kind of support system. Um, but I guess, to be honest, that's probably a root of a lot of my motivations and especially to do with uni, you know, it was something that quite early on, I was like, right, I've got to get myself to uni. I've got to kind of make it happen, yeah. shake a leg. So then would you say that that was something that your mom spoke to you about when you were a kid growing up? Or was that something that you both kind of had to learn after moving here? 
<laughs> not really. Do you know what? One of the things that my mum always says to me uh, privately is that obviously she moved here and uh, my mum's not one of those like African parents that's really like strict, like you will sit and you will do this, you know, like she, she's quite open-minded. And I think different African cultures and just different parents in general, whether you're African or not, are different in terms of strictness. Where she was strict was, I think also this came from a fear of just being in a different country where you don't really kind of understand how people navigate things. So I was never really allowed to go out to do stuff. Mm. So she was strict in that sense, but she obviously like pushed education and pushed for me to do well in school, but it wasn't like, you will be a doctor, you will be an engineer <laughs> type of thing. Yeah. So like personally, she always kind of like compliments me on, on just being able to kind of navigate and make my own decisions mm. um, in that sense. Like, you know, right, I'm going to go to this uni, I'm going to go to whatever. And I think she was able to take a little bit more of that back seat because I've always been quite like a confident, just go for it type of person and like outspoken ever since I was a little girl. So I think... In terms of me having like that get up and go, I don't think it's something that she really needed to like crack the whip on. Mm -hmm. Um, She always says like, you know, we kind of came to this country, we didn't know anything, we didn't know anyone. um, And you've been able to figure out certain things, whether it's even like an after school club that I want to go to and just little tiny things. so yeah, like I had support from her in, in other other senses and there was an overarching thing of like get yourself motivated, but it wasn't really rigid and really strict in terms of what I should and, uh, and what I should be doing in the future. Yeah, I think yeah. one of the things, I don't think we've actually ever spoken about this, but you, you spoke on how confident you've always been since you were a kid. One of the questions mm-hmm. that I had was, if we think about the way that African culture, and I, I know that's ridiculous because there's so many different types of African culture, yeah. the way that it is as a monolith received in the UK nowadays. So much of British culture is based on what is happening in Afrobeats, for instance, and what the biggest artists and people in fashion from Africa are doing. It wasn't that way when we were younger. I remember when we were younger, being black in the UK by default meant you were Caribbean. So one of the questions yeah. that I wanted to ask was, how did the kids that you were around, and maybe the older kids as well, receive you given that not only were you a black girl, but you were also from Gambia. It wasn't, you were Jamaican, it wasn't that you were Bayesian, it wasn't that kind of thing. Do you think that had any kind of bearing on the way that people received you? Um, It's kind of twofold because I had my own struggles, I guess, just being the only black kid overall. So like just things that even now when I think about as a 28 year old woman were actually quite traumatic, really. Like I remember in primary school, um, these two lads would be like, oh, another day, another haircut. Because obviously my mum used to like you change your hairstyle and change your braids and stuff all yeah. the time. Um, so that was tough in, in that sense. But I think, you know, to, to a lot of people that I was around all the time, um, I was just the black kid. Yeah. And I think for white kids in Yorkshire, they don't really care if they just think that, oh, like it's a Bob Marley joke. So it just applies to you automatically. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Actually, with other black kids that were around the city, even though there weren't that many and not as many as there is now in Wakefield, um, I actually had quite a few struggles with them because I went to primary school, the Catholic primary school, and then um, you just naturally go on to the, the high school after. So the only time really that I'd see other black kids mainly was in the bus station because I had to get two buses to get yeah. to school. 
Um, and they would kind of like automatically just expect me to like be friends with them. But then they also weren't very nice to me. So it was there wasn't like a massive incentive because I think they kind of thought that I was like better than them or whatever. But I just wasn't the kind of kid that hung around, you know, like after school at the bus station. It was literally I was at the bus station to change buses and they just so happened to see me with my school friends who were obviously predominantly white because there wasn't that many of us. Yeah. Um, so I used to get quite a lot of stick from uh, the other black kids uh, from other schools being like, oh, you know, yeah, she, she just wants to be white type of thing, which is so funny to me because the kids that they didn't see me with at the bus station who were black, one of like five of us in the entire school, I actually was friends with in yeah. school as well as my white um, friends. But they'd say like, oh, she acts white or she acts whatever. But the irony of it was that, and I guess everybody goes through this like an identity crisis of who am I as a black person in Britain, especially if you're a teenager and you, some people try to kind of, put themselves, you know, a certain box to fit a certain way. But I always felt really pained by it and even like resisted it more because I felt like they were trying to act like black kids from London. Yeah. And I was used to think, why are you insulting me when when I go home, I speak my language? Do you know what I mean? That's what I speak to my family. So like for me, I just felt like my blackness and even now is more my Africanness yeah. rather than what people think is like British, etc., so or whatever box they put me in. Yeah, so it's kind of like they were questioning your authenticity, but as a kid, you're like, well, I'm as authentic as authentic as it comes. <laughs> like, how dare you do that? Like, I'm literally yeah. from the continent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and like, I was authentic for me in in my own Africanness, but I felt like they were being authentic to them based on the caricature of what white people thought black people should act like. Mm. And I didn't blame them because I feel like in a way that was their way of showing that they were proud to be black, you know, like yeah. they might speak a certain way or use certain lingo. And then like, and that's the type of thing that maybe some white people would look their nose down at. But I actually, in a way, you know, respect that they were like, Do you know what, this is me. This is my outward way of saying I'm going to be black no matter what but then I also wanted the respect of being black in my way and black in my way is African eating my food speaking my language and mm. um, to my family well that's the thing I think we are as black people whichever side of that coin you fall on we're all victims because the only black representation we would see in the 90s and the noughties was what was pushed to us which was American hip-hop which was Fresh Prince it was very specific things so if you didn't conform to that then you were othered and you were othered mm. by black people but then if you did conform say for instance I used to um, when I was at university when I was at the like at some time called Carlton because I dressed like everybody else did at work but it's like yeah. you're demonized on both sides aren't you because you're not just allowed we're starting to see it now in certain shows like we, we look at Michaela Coel and stuff but we're starting to see that there is just a normal regular be who you want to be black um, black person as well but we didn't have that in the past it was either you're preppy and you're a sellout or you're 50 cent <laughs> there's no in between uh, yeah. the, the fascinating thing was like the, the scene you just described there's a film by um it's called School Days I think it's by the guy who did Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. That's it. John Singleton. Yeah, I and see the like yeah, VHS cover. Yeah, and it's got uh, it's got Sam Jackson in it. And there's a scene where Sam Jackson and all his local friends, <clears throat> they're like the local townies, and 
that you walk around with like the sort of shower caps on and the chemicals trying to get the, the jerry girls and then on the other side is Lawrence Fishburne and his and his friends who like they're just at the local university and they keep clashing even though it's a it's the the issue Sam, Lawrence Fishburne has is with the sort of the, the white people in the establishment and Sam Jackson's gang think they're always looking down on them and they have the, it's the exact almost the exact same sort of clash they have and it's it's based on this perception that if if you know if you're not directly with us then you you know you must be you must be with them and they have this conversation yeah brother what do you want you ain't no kid to me that's right and we ain't your brothers how come you college motherfuckers think y'all run everything hey is there a problem here big problems i heard that you come to our town year after year and take over we was born here gonna be here and gonna die here and can't find jobs because of you yeah can, can we go? Okay, can we just go? We may not have your education, but we ain't dirt neither. And ain't nobody said all of that, all right? You Mission Park's always talking down to us. Look, brother, I'm real sorry that you feel that way, okay? I'm really sorry about that. Are you black? Take a look in the mirror, man. Look, man, you got a legitimate beef, all right? But it ain't with us, okay? Are you black? Hey, look, man, don't let me question the fact whether I'm black. In fact, I was gonna ask your country, Bama ass, why you got them drip drip chemicals in your head? Right, <laughs> goddammit. And then come out in public with a shower cap on your head. You now I bet you niggas do think y'all white. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas. And you gonna be niggas forever. Just like us. Niggas. You're not niggas. It's it's a scene that you know you you see regularly and i guess for yourself like you say you just came here with your mum at six it's not necessarily something that you need when you're just trying to sort of grow up get on with your life i was gonna say it's interesting because i was talking about this at the weekend because um it almost feels as if i'm going through something similar now even when i'm 28 because i feel like i can see a gap between being black and northern, especially in yeah. media circles. Yeah. Um, so it's weird because I kind of feel like, ugh, I don't know if this is controversial, I'm not like fucking London. Say it. Folk, we love obviously. it, yeah. <laughs> Say it. But like, obviously, um, it's we're at a stage now, especially in black British media, where you know, people are getting more opportunities, which is great. And we're seeing a lot more representation and we're seeing it how it should be. But at the same time, London is also a massive um, fishbowl. Yeah. So when you get, you know, like certain opportunities, obviously it's only right that you try to kind of, you know, throw the rope down and, you know, bring other people with you. But what ends up actually happening is that I think a lot of black Londoners or in the London community, it's very easy to forget that there's also black northerners. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of hard as well to just match in terms of like personality. There's no kind of like direct animosity. I think it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And also even when it comes to like banter and just general things, um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of still in a way feel like a bit of an outsider, but in a different way, even at 28 years old. I, yeah, I think you're 100% right. And it's, 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 this is something which I think needs talking about and something which people in in these circles need to sort of be mindful of because basically before the, there was none of these opportunities and then i guess there's been a sort of community of of, of black uh 
let's say Londoners in the media, and you want those opportunities, so you bring your friends through. Mm-hmm. And when you say you, mm-hmm. you bring your friends through, and it's just it just automatically becomes like just clustering around of pe- the same people that you know instead of saying actually yeah. let's reach outside of that group. And it's not it's not an intentional thing, but it's awful because it reinforces uh, that divide because suddenly you've got a group of, you've had 20 people doing the rounds and none of them have, have set foot outside the M- M25. No, and the stories, they just get kind of, it's just a very similar story that gets told all the time. And I think we spoke about this when we had um, Steve McQueen's series when he mm. did Small Axe and how powerful those stories were and we understood why they needed to be spoken on, but they were all London centric. And there was so much that was really prevalent to race and race relations in the UK that happened around the same time as a lot of the stories he told in that series that were happening in Liverpool, that were happening in Bristol, that were happening in Manchester, Huddersfield, all these different places, and none of it really gets spoken about. Uh, it's like we've had Neef on uh, three times. I think he's been on three times or twice, and he's like he's currently writing a book, and that book's about uh, I think it's the impact of grime and. Uh, or sort of on, on ground communities outside of London, so yeah. he's going all around the UK, and it's it's fascinating. He tells the same story like these communities that no one is aware of and no one is sort of cognizant of t- until you know t- you get or you, until you turn on reality TV show and you see someone like oh I didn't know there were black people in Ireland, and it's like yeah. well people exist outside of <laughs> this you know this the, the the four blocks around where you Metropole, live. Yeah. yeah. For me, I'm not Nigerian, I'm not Ghanaian, I'm not Jamaican, and I'm from a tiny African country. Yeah. I think the smallest Af- um, country in mainland Africa. So in terms of culture, I think sometimes if you don't subscribe to certain things, like if I don't dance a certain way, you know, if I don't shackle on the beat, then it's almost as if I'm not black enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's so funny hearing you guys talk about this because just being mixed, this yeah. is been my lifelong question since I realized that I was not white or that it was an actual color apparently um so I just find it funny because it's like these are sort of the identity crises that I went through just being like like you said Joanna not fully embraced by white people but also kind of shunned by black people and then being like okay well where are my people then and these guys always joke but I'm about like eight different ethnicities so it's like really where like where do I fit in am I just supposed to be an island so I don't know I think for me I have felt like that has been both a blessing and a curse like it's presented its challenges but it's also given me some of my greatest strengths and my sort of direction in life and a lot of empathy and I just wonder um do you see your experience of feeling othered when you were younger as predominantly a challenge or a strength or both? That's a good question. I would say both. I think when I look back at some of the things that happened in my childhood, I realized that I'm very good at kind of just putting things to the back of my mind and just kind of keeping it pushing. for me, the, the core the core thing for me has always been about what do my family back home in Gambia think? What does my mum think? And I think that's kind of been more what I've been bothered about, which kind of echoes what I was saying before, that I didn't really care about acting a certain way in order to be accepted by certain black kids that weren't even the, people, the black kids that I actually spent time with in school because 
Um, I was more focused on the fact that I can speak my language, I subscribe to my own culture, and that's it. Um, but in a way, I think um, kind of being rebellious in that way and, and almost being like, you know what, I'm just going to do whatever I want, whether it's with this group or with another group, has also helped me just kind of think, okay, I'm just going to carve out my own path and it doesn't really matter what anybody thinks of me, I'm just going to kind of go for it. Um, and in a way, I kind of wish that I had a little bit more of what I used to have um, in terms of that attitude before, because I think now I, I care way more what people think. Yeah. And I think that's the aftermath of the basically awful experience that I had to an extent on The Apprentice that's just made me a lot more hypersensitive to people's opinions um, because you end up in this echo chamber and you end up believing things about yourself that are kind of pushed on you. Mm. We're definitely going to get into that. When we were at Newcastle, obviously this is where me and Joanna met, so we were both at Newcastle Uni at the same time. A few years behind me, I'm not going to um, try and pretend that I'm still 28. Uh, did you see any <laughs> of that change when you were at uni, like the perspectives? Because I think university, this is going to sound pretty ridiculous, but I had my black friends back home. Most of my friends were white. Yeah. When I went to university was when I was reminded oh yeah, you're one black and two very much working class because of the kind of scene that there was in Newcastle. I mean, you know very well that in the kind of circle we run in, there was what, you can count on one hand how many like prominent black faces there were. And uh -huh. the vast majority of people were from pretty wealthy backgrounds at Newcastle University. So just before we get onto yeah. The Apprentice, which we are obviously going to speak about, how did you find the difference moving from Wakefield up to uni? To be honest, for me, it was exactly the same. It's just what I've always been used to since I moved to this um, country. So it wasn't even, and I can understand other people who maybe have like um, gone to school in London or down south or somewhere a lot more ethnically diverse and then they moved to somewhere like Newcastle. Um, but on my course, I was the only black person on my entire course. Mm. There was um, one other girl who was doing a combined honours that I literally saw like once a month or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was the only black person. And even walking around Newcastle Uni, I kind of felt as if you didn't really see that many black people. And I didn't even realise there was an African-Caribbean society until third year. Mm. And then I was like, mm. well, I'm too busy to kind of join this anyway. But um I do get what you mean about the working class element. That I probably felt the most because I was I was always used to being the only black person, but then at least everybody else was working class around me. And then I ended up in a situation where I was mostly the only black person, but everybody was from Chelsea in my lectures, <laughs> seminars. Um, so what I ended up doing was actually just being friends with people from Northumbria. And it wasn't yeah, even same. something where I was like, <laughs> all time Northumbria. Exactly. It wasn't even something where I was like, oh, I don't fit in here. I've got to go find new friends. It was just, it just naturally happened to the point where I think I literally had two friends that went to Newcastle Uni and all of my circle of friends who were still my main group of friends now all went to Northumbria. Yeah. To the point where people thought I went to Northumbria. <laughs> Yeah, I have to do that quite often, just remind them, yeah, I mean, I'm your people, but I'm not your people. I still had a different company. Yeah. <laughs> it's, there's something you yeah. just said then, I, I need to confess, right? So you mentioned the Afro-Caribbean Society at uni. One of my biggest yeah. regrets to this day is I remember finding out about them in my first year. And I had a yeah. complex from when we were at college that it was always mentioned that the Asian kids at school and at college always stuck together 
and they didn't yeah. get out and about and meet other people and mix and whatnot. So I had this real complex that I was like, well, if I go and join the Afro-Caribbean Society, everyone's going to think I'm doing what I was always told that I shouldn't do and that I should mix and, and be involved in different cultures and different, basically just be involved with white people, if we're being completely honest. Yeah. Um, and that's one of my biggest regrets because I think had I done what I wanted to do rather than done what I feared to do otherwise, I would have had a very different experience at uni. And I had a wonderful time, but I just think it, it could have been enriched a bit more by actually just engaging with that. Um, and it, it honestly is a big regret of mine. I remember seeing it, smelling the food and being like, I need some of that. <laughs> but nah, I can't do that. I can't uh, do that. It's mad. Uh, I wish I would try Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just, I've, I've thought about that before. I've thought about that before. And I, to be honest, I, to this day, I have no idea if Northern Riyadh and ACS, I suspect not, um, just because of the type of university it was. Um, and yeah, I've, having sub subsequently met like so many people who sort of live that and now this, they've got these sort of relationships and bonds with these people with the, that they met in the ACS and the experience that they have and like books I've read, I'm like, oh, that's something I've missed out on. But I'm not, I don't really go in for regret. So that's something which I, you know, in the future will hopefully get to pass on to my progeny. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I don't really, I wouldn't say I regret things, but sometimes I think back to like all of the learning that is occurring in my life now could have been done a little bit earlier, especially in college. But I think also by the time, and when I say college, I mean university. By the time I got to university, I had come from, a childhood experiencing like low-key racism that I didn't realize was racist until I left <laughs> and then going to school and not feeling again not really feeling like I belonged with black people because that's not who really embraced me yeah. and like I actually felt more welcomed by white people <laughs> so we did have a black fraternity and sorority, which I wish that I had been more involved with in some capacity. And there's definitely, I mean, it's a huge university, loads of black people, it's in the middle of South Central. So the communities are there. Um, yeah, I don't live in regret, but I'm also kind of like, that would have been nice. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that, um, like coming from Huddersfield, probably when you were growing up, there was probably a, a bigger black community in Huddersfield than what there was for me in Wakefield. But because obviously um, your environment was still mixed and there were quite a lot of white people there as well, did you kind of indirectly or in the back of your mind feel like the people in the ACS wouldn't fully get you, especially because you're Northern and maybe some of those kids might have come from elsewhere in the UK? Joanna, I, I genuinely still have that to this day, so. Um, <laughs> To your initial question, so my upbringing, it seems like was fairly similar to yours. So whilst I have a mixed family, Jamaican is very much the culture that runs through everything in my family. So whilst I'd be at school and where, where me and Dan grew up just outside of Huddersfield, it was like 99.9% .9 white. Um, and when you're in those surroundings, it didn't matter so much to me because I knew I would go home and I'd be listening to certain music, eating certain food, hearing certain accents, etc. So it wasn't that much of a thing. But to your question about the ACS, genuinely still affects me to this day. And like, if I remember dating days, 
pre on a long time ago, long, long time ago. No, 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 long time ago, long time ago. I can say it, I don't mind saying this. I had filters on my dating apps for black women. I got to the age I was like, I need, I need some home comforts in my love life. And I really, really struggled because so many of the black women that I start chatting to, the only thing that we shared in common was our skin color and maybe a little bit of music. Mm. So many of the other experiences that we had were completely different. The way that I spoke, like a couple of them that I went on with on dates with or had like FaceTimed, it was like, yo, what's up with your accent, bruv? I'm like, this is the accent of where I'm from. Like, I can't help that. And I did genuinely, I think, still to some degree have a complex about that to this day where it's like, I struggle to feel as though I will ever be fully embraced in a black London community because of the way that I sound and because of the experiences that I've had, I'm not gonna go on a train and get excited when I see sheep because that's the life that I've lived. But <laughs> I have friends. I feel called out. Genuinely, I'm, I'm, I'm not even joking. I talk to people like, yo, they got sheep and they got cows up there, bro. It's mad. But like that kind of thing, it still affects me to this day. And honestly, I've got, I've, there's one in particular, I'm, I'm going on a stag do with a predominantly black London group next month. and. I've heard myself and I feel so embarrassed, but I'm, I'm a bit of a chameleon sometimes in social context. And I've heard my accent change a little bit around them. And I'm like, why am I doing this? This is doing, I'm doing this just to fit in when they already accept me for who I am. But I think because of just the way that black people in the UK are set up and black culture set up in the UK, it still hits me at 31 years old. <laughs> it's, it's honestly quite a, sh it's quite a shame. How about you, Joanna? Um, exactly the same, even when, so I went to uh, Mo Gilligan after party yeah. the day yeah. and before I'd had a few um, drinks and tequilas, I felt so uncomfortable. Yeah. What did you say? I said humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the right rooms, Joanna. Yeah. I was at 180 Strand, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but it kind of echoes what I was saying about the whole media thing because I don't really go to that many parties. So um, when it comes to like that type of scene, and when and a lot of them do. So I think when you go in there, for me anyway, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome, as yeah. if like, who is this? Why do you sound like that? And when you open your mouth, and people think you're gonna have a, Lon a London accent, and then you don't. Um, but yeah, I don't think that'll ever go away for us, to be honest, Dom, unless you move back up north and then Never. somebody like me <laughs> again. Really? I couldn't do it, Joanna, honestly. I couldn't do it. Really? Yeah, he's, he's saying <laughs> this. He's, he's, this guy's headed down to Cornwall, so it's no, going to be even worse. No, that's, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny like, you, you both say that because I guess it goes back to what you were saying earlier on about... Um, people in sort of the media world opening opportunities to, to other people that sound like them. And I think that's very much the case. And I wouldn't I wouldn't expect any other way if it's, you know, it's Mo Gilligan's, it's his like celebration. He's going to have his friends around, around him. He's going to have people he knows around him. And those are the type of people that are going to be going in those, in those types of parties. But when we went to Simeon's book launch, I think because it was more of a literary thing, you've got... Um, Careful. No, I'm saying it's it's it was far more open. So you've got people. It was a it was a room full of black people, mm -hmm. but people from all over the place. Obviously, niece from Southampton, 
I'm from Yorkshire. You, you've got uh, Angela was there. He's from Canterbury. You've got Lana there. Like people were from all over the place, and it's, it's it was, I just think it's it just I guess it kind of depends on the which part of the uh, the sort of the industry. Yeah, that, yeah. that we're talking on about the industry. But then on top of that. I think the reason we feel it so much is because the most prominent, the most visible is entertainment mm. because that's what we all absorb, whether we like it or not. Yeah. So I think, like you say, in, in literary circles and other, if it was a sports circle, for instance, there's so many black athletes, like half the England team are black people from up north. Mm. So I know that it's, it's just because it's so prominent in the circles that we absorb the most, we consume the most, which mm. happens to be entertainment, which happens to be the circle that you're in at the moment, um, Joanna. But you're you're lucky, Dom, that you still like we were talking briefly before this about accents, I think. Um and it's kind of the opposite as well because when I come back up north, it's like, why well, do you sound like that? And it's like, <laughs> what do I sound? <laughs> you know, you never win. Like, when I'm no. like, oh brother, you like, you know, I, I sound really northern. A lot of people actually think I'm from Manchester. No one ever thinks I'm Yorkshire. Oh, people right. always think I'm from Manchester. I get um, Birmingham. Oh, Birmingham. Birmingham, honestly, most Londoners think my accent's Birmingham. It's mad. I think they just go, uh, uh anywhere up north, <laughs> just like <laughs> it's because they know that there's black people in Birmingham. That's the thing. That's they know there's black is, people. Yeah. That's where it ends for them. Anything higher than that, there's no black people yeah. up there. That's true. Let's talk Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah, let's talk Apprentice. I guess it's it's uh, it's a good segue given the you how you're just talking about sort of stepping into some of these environments and stepping into some of these parties. Obviously, when you went on to The Apprentice, I, I I assume it must have crossed your mind at some point that you're not going to be in uh, an environment where you are in any kind of majority. Um, was was that something which, I guess, crossed your mind before you went on or were you just focused on, I'm going on to achieve this? No, I actually think that um, when I went on to The Apprentice, I was very, very naive. Um, so... Obviously, I was saying that I went to a predominantly white primary school, high school, uh, again, college, actually, uni. So that was actually what I was used to. So it would have been probably even weirder if it was different, because it actually would have been, even in my workplace, it was still the same environment. It's so weird. My entire life, it's just been the same setup. So that wasn't an issue for me. But also, what it ended up doing was making me quite naive to certain things that I think that I'd experienced all my life and it's always been there, but I was never able to kind of fully vocalize them, really digest what's really happening, yeah. you know? Earlier on, I was saying that one thing about me, I've been very good at just kind of putting things to the back of my head and just getting on with it. But I think in The Apprentice, I was in this kind of fishbowl where everything is so much more heightened you know like if a kid says something about my braids at school I can go home and things can be normal you know similar to what you were saying before Dom mm. whereas in The Apprentice it's kind of like you beat with a stick over and over and over again with the same microaggressions mm. and you start thinking is this really happening because I've had very kind of overt racism to the point where like um I grew up on a council estate with my mum so um 
it was quite like a rough area and like our neighbors would like post dog poo in our letterbox and stuff. Oh my God. And call like um, arrow thrower and stuff like that when we'd walk past to the point where I'd have to like detour around to get to my house so I wouldn't have to walk past them. So I've had very overt um, experiences of racism, but I don't think I've ever been in an environment where I've really been able to understand how much impact the microaggressions and those are the ones that chip away at you bit by bit by bit. And for me, the microaggressions hurt more than being called the N-word or whatever. And does it, did you feel like it also, there was the added pressure of the fact that you knew that you were going to be televised. So all this is being filmed. So your reactions are being filmed. Like, were you really conscious of that as you were going through it? Yeah, absolutely. I actually tried to quit in week seven of The Apprentice, like packed my suitcase and everything because I was like, I'm not doing this anymore because I've actually realized what's going on in terms of the type of character that you're um, trying to put on me. And that's not to say, to sit here and say, oh, I was a complete angel and I was quiet and, you know, everybody was just, you know, against me 24-7. There was an element of that. um, And I do, obviously, I'm a confident person and I have a mouth, but also so does everybody else on The Apprentice. It's 18, very highly confident. That's why they put you all together because... You, you're bound to clash. Everybody wants to be in charge. <laughs> Everybody knows exactly what they want. Um, so it's like that. But the problem was that it was the double standard. Mm. Um, and I knew it was happening. And when I went on to The Apprentice, um, I'd just turned 23 at the time. So I was barely out oh, of uni. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and I remember saying to the other candidates, like, look, some of you were in your 30s. One, one woman was in her 40s. I said, you, a lot of you have already established your career and your CVs, and a lot of you have businesses to go home to. I don't have anything to go home to, and I certainly don't have a rich family. Or I didn't have any type of safety net. Yeah. So I thought, the longer I go on with this and I have this reputational damage, I'm going to go to a job interview, and it's not even going to matter what I do. Mm. It's going to be more so about however I was... Um, portrayed but I guess in summary it was more so about I could be arguing with somebody or I could have a disagreement with someone but you could see by the time we got to the boardroom it was more focused on me or someone else could have had a way bigger conflict but when it comes to discussing the whole task in the boardroom it felt as if the producers had put in place kind of I guess discussion points and main things that um Lord Sugar's going to go through and a lot of the focus focus was mainly on me and I could just see it made me so so mad because I remember watching it and obviously seeing you get emotional if you see your friend get emotional you're going to get mad anyway but it seems like and I don't know why I'm saying it seems like it definitely is the case that they put together a group of people and there's already supposed dialogues that they expect to happen supposed um, personalities that they expect to be in there, certain characteristics that they expect a young black woman to have, that they expect a confident young Asian man to have, etc. So just seeing it play out like that, it was, it kind of, taking aside the fact that I was I was angry for you, did you see any of it as kind of like vindication where the, the, the nation could kind of see what was happening? Because I remember when it was happening and being on Twitter, I know Twitter wasn't anywhere near as big as it is now, but there were so many people that were speaking about it because it was clear to see. Did that help at yeah. all? It did. 
And do you know what? You really know that there's a problem when even white people are saying, wow, this is disgusting. Yeah. And like, you know, there's, do you know what I mean? Because like, obviously black people, you can see it from a mile off. And I could mm. see black people tweeting from week four, week five, when yeah. I was being treated a certain way. But um, I think the nail in the coffin was when um, I'd got to the final five. And there'd been little murmurings of it. And every week it got more and more where people were starting to notice that there were people that were way more, quote unquote, aggressive than me, were getting in way more conflicts than me, but they just weren't getting the repercussions for it. Um, And then it got to the final five. um, And the reason why I'd kept quiet through um, The Apprentice being shown on TV and, you know, not kind of said anything about what I'd experienced was because I thought it doesn't matter because my work will speak for itself. You know, when I get to final five, People will see what the business plan is all about and they won't care kind of thing. Um, But then when I got to the final five, um, almost, I think it was four out of five interviewers, every single time I sat down, it was, oh, week one, you had a problem with this person. Week two, you had a problem with that person. Oh, I heard that you're a little little bit fighty. Mm. And in the end, my interviews were more about my personality than about the business plan that I thought was going to kind of vindicate me. So then that's when people were like, this is ridiculous. You know, you can do that whole entertainment thing for all the weeks, you know, beforehand. But I actually left the process with the best record. So I'd won um, eight out of 10 tasks and was the only person who won twice as project manager. And none of that was the focus Mm -mm. in my interviews. It was so obvious. Um, And just to kind of tell you a quick story of how that actually panned out, I don't think I've ever even had the chance to to like discuss this before. Um, But when you do the You're Hired, you know, the spin-off show, you don't get to see the episode. Obviously, you see the episodes as they come out. um, And you do the You're Hired show before it actually airs. So they brought me a laptop and um, kind of showed me the episode. And I had a full, I lost, can I swear? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely lost my shit in the in the um dressing room. Literally had a full on panic attack because all these weeks I was like, it's fine, it's fine. When it gets to final five, people will see this exciting business that I'm trying to pitch. And then there was barely anything about my business plan. And then the worst thing about it was that um I then like had to speak to like the executive producers. They were like, No, it's fine, people will see, da 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 da. And then the worst thing is I watched it about an hour before I had to go out and be interviewed for the your um fire show on BBC Two. And I literally had to pretend as if nothing had happened, pull myself together because I thought, if I go out there and I act miserable and I actually feel how sad and depressed I've actually been in the past hour. It's just reinforcing the same narrative. Like, look at her; she's so mangy. And it was honestly it was the worst experience. Oh god. Yeah, I mean, fucking disgusting. The anti-racism activist Shireen Daniels, um, when she was talking about, it was I think she was actually talking about Love Island, and there's a lot of sort of parallels between sort of the way you were treated and and the sort of production tricks and tra- techniques that are used to ensure they get the best TV. She called it sort of cultural racism. She said it's about how the media portrays black people, but it's also about being ignorant in understanding the dynamics of society and how black contestants on the show will be perceived. So whilst they're thinking in that case, rejection is rejection, not all rejections are equal, and each one has different implications and connotations when you're black. Mm-hmm. 
said they've got the produ- the producers have got duty of care in pre-production to think about what res- responsible broadcasting looks like. They need to be conscious of not perpetuating certain stereotypes and not tokenizing certain individuals. To go on, um, she says that don't forget that we're all socialized into this racialized society. They may go in like contestants, just skipping, thinking it's an opportunity and not realize that it's a lion's den. And I, I feel like what you, as you were saying when you were young and you thought at the end, my work's going to speak for itself. Mm. It's it, they need to be cognizant and of, of the fact that, you know, to, to tell the contestants that, you know, this this is a game show after all and people have their favorites and, and that's not going to be enough mm. necessarily to get it done the risk for black contestants is far more serious than for white contestants just because of racism and where we are as a society. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's again, like I said, the parallels of like, again, those microaggressions, people, black people on Love Island just not getting picked first. I never watched mm-hmm. Bullet Island. I've never got through a full episode, but the first time that I tried to watch it was coerced into watching it was the year that Marcel was on there. And I remember looking at the lineups and being like, Marcel's better looking than him. He's better looking than him. He's better looking than her. He's better looking than her. He's better. And he still didn't get picked. And I was like, holy shit, I'm never watching this show again. But then it just made me realize just how how broad and how widespread it is. It's it's disgusting, man. Yeah, there was, uh, there was Kaz, so there was Marcel, there was Yuande. Mm-hmm. I think they were, none of those were, they were all like just left on their own first. Like, and then once they, they get on the show, they can't argue because if they argue, they're a bully, Misha B. Like, mm. it's just, it happens too much, too often on too many different shows yeah. for it to be a coincidence. Yeah. It's not just shows though, like this, this is gonna sound petty, man. <laughs> I remember, be, this is like a therapy session now. I remember being in like year 10 or year 11, and you know how, how teenagers would be like, oh, rating the guys, and like the girls being like, oh yeah, who are the best looking people in the school? And I got told that my personality was the best looking. I was like, are you oh, fucking God. serious? Wow. Like, listen, being as objective as possible, I'm better looking after those because I'm looking home first. Sorry for swearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really bad. Worst word. But honestly, like, just thinking back to those days and it just perpetuates itself in every single level of media and society. And it just, it's those tiny little things that they just grind you down day by day, experience by experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And again, like, yes. sorry, go on. Even in the world of work, I, I think with The Apprentice, Obviously, the shows like Love Island, which I think Love Island was kind of in its infancy at the time when yeah. um, I went on The Apprentice, I think it was in its third or fourth season. Yeah. Um, but I think for a concept like The Apprentice, it's been a good few years since a dark-skinned black woman has been on The Apprentice. And mm. even overall, just in general, no matter what um, shade of, uh, of black, you know, there hasn't been a lot of black women in general overall, you know, on The Apprentice. Um, and then for it to be so obvious, the way that they treated me, um, I actually had loads of messages from girls that just in normal working environments in the corporate world, girls who were at uni saying, you know, watching this is really triggered me because this is what's happening when I'm trying to do group work, you know, with yeah. people at uni. And these are the things that I've been going through at work and I haven't really been able to kind of vocalize it or kind of make sense of it. So... Mm. It was kind of a unique situation of, of, for a lot of black women, kind of seeing a mirror of yourself yeah. in a work environment that was closer to anything else that you'd seen. Like we all know what we go through when it comes to dating. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I think this was this was a kind of eye opener for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking now, just as you said the thing about not seeing many dark skinned black women on it since, I wonder because I mean your credentials spoke for themselves, your the, your record on the show spoke for itself. We've since seen two light skinned mixed black women get right to the very end in The Apprentice. I wonder if your experience on there really had an impact on how those two women that I'm thinking of managed to progress through the well, show. It's funny that you said that because, and I don't know, it's tough because I'm not gonna lie and to be completely honest, that has crossed my mind. But then at the same time, those those two women were also very good. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So I don't want to kind of take take that away from them. But one thing that I have noticed is that, um, especially because the person who won it after the whole racism row, as mm-hmm. the, the people tried to call it, quote unquote, um, the person who won it was um, a biracial woman yeah. just the year after after me. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there was still kind of like the hangover of the whole conflict and argument about how I was treated. And whenever I saw people discussing it on Twitter, you'd then see certain people comment, well, how could The Apprentice be racist? Or how exactly. could Lord be racist when this person's just won it? You know? So it, it, it does come up um, as kind of like a defense now. Um, the person who won it actually also was pitching for um, a fashion business. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you do have a point, but then at the same time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's, we can't prove it, but there's too many coincidences that I've seen in life to not think that that has something to do with it. Yeah. So, so for your experience post-Apprentice, and how has that sort of, I guess, coloured your next experience like moving forward into into business into the the sort of real world of business and your what are your thoughts i guess on progressing in a space where qualities that are lauded for for white men and women are roundly rejected for women that look like yourself well to be completely honest and transparent when the apprentice first aired and um, I barely left my house for the first couple of months, generally, genuinely, because I thought that everybody just hates me. Like, I literally just did. I don't know. It really affected me. It really, really affected me. And mm. when you were um, reading out um, that kind of, I was going to say that passage <laughs> earlier um, <laughs> about the violence, um, one thing that um, I noticed was the comment on aftercare, and there's none of that. Mm. Like, if you ever hear a statement from The Apprentice saying that there's aftercare, there is literally zero. Um, so I think my confidence was definitely knocked. I didn't really know what to do. I kind of considered going back into, like, a normal kind of office environment. And I actually got offered quite a really good job um, working for Sage in London. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost as if, like, I had... To, I don't want to call it trauma. I feel like... I mean, it is trauma. Word, yeah. It is trauma. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like to an extent it was trauma, but I just, I would just be paranoid. I would be paranoid to kind of go into that environment. So that was kind of like, okay, I'm not going to go back into a normal working environment. So what the hell am I going to do? And then the easiest way really to make money was doing public speaking. I could basically make the same as what I would have done anyway, you know, like in a month, just from like one or two speeches. Mm -hmm. But then the worst thing about that was I'd go in 
and I'd feel like everybody hates me in the room, but then I, I kind of felt like, well, at least it's only for an hour and then I can go and hide. Whereas if I was in an office environment every single day where I felt like everybody hated me, that would literally be hell. Yeah. And I would have such anxiety that I would like do a speech and then come home. Nobody knows. I feel like I'm properly <laughs> opening up for you guys. Uh, therapy session. But I'd do a speech and then obviously it was just after The Apprentice, especially everybody would be like, what's what you like? Do you really have 20 minutes to get ready? Mm. But after the speech, I would always overcompensate myself, overcompensate. Yeah. So I'd be booked for like a half an hour or 45 minute speech where I could technically just go after that. But I'd stay and meet people, you know, just to be like, oh, I'm not really as bad as what mm. I look, yeah. you know, on TV, which is sad in itself. And then I'd go home. And I kid you not, I had to get a weighted blanket. This is like a mental health episode yes. now. This is actually great uh, that you're I, going into this because we were going to ask about it anyway. So continue, please. Yeah. Sorry, I'm like, this, these are my traumas, guys. I'm laying them out on the table. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd basically go home and just be numb for like three or four days straight. Like I'd, I'd felt like I'd run like, 50k or something like that like my muscles would actually be aching from the anxiety mm. um so to kind of answer your question because I know that I've completely gone off on a tangent um but since then I've kind of found my strength again and circled back to I'm not as bothered what people think yeah. especially when it comes to media stuff and that's where like good morning Britain debates have come in and then I've kind of gone away from that now and just um, do more like newspaper reviews where there's a bit less conflict and a bit less bad press, yeah. from my opinion. <laughs> oh, you hold your own well, though. <laughs> I've seen enough of that. Mm. And the thing is, most people, these are experiences that we live through in the office, which is bad enough, like in the office behind closed doors, knowing that you've got to work with these people every day. I'm, like, I'm not. I'm just gonna ignore this. I'm just gonna ignore this. I cannot be bothered. Or you can escalate it, or you can you can fight it, and you know that you're gonna have to deal with the associated stigma when people misrepresent you, and people deal with that behind closed doors. Whereas you have to deal with it on television in front of loads of people, having had no right to reply, so to speak. So it's entirely understandable that you'd you'd find ways to to cope with that in your own way and then it's it's a credit to you that you sort of you you did it in in, in such a way yeah i um if i can go into just a mental health little moment here um so it's something that we talk about on the podcast all the time it's a topic that's been very close to our hearts and minds and we all have our different processes for um maintaining our peace and dealing with our mental health. And I also saw that you wrote and responded to Naomi Osaka being very vocally an advocate for her own mental health. And she's also somebody who essentially when she goes to work is under immense pressure and in the public eye and is just being vocal about trying to find the space to maintain good mental health. And so just wanted to know from you, um, what do you think is missing for or or what what support is needed within the workplace to support the mental health of black women and maybe also what are some of the things that you do to support your own mental health um i think the support for black women i think the thing that's most missing is 
understanding and I know that that sounds like such a basic kind of answer but I feel as if we're a group that people don't really try to understand as much I think that a lot of the things that do actually affect us come off quite trivial to some people for example things to do with hair yeah. mm -hmm. you know like people are like oh but it's only a compliment oh it's only you know there's certain things where if you were to talk as a black woman to say, actually, some of the things that make me feel quite uncomfortable um, going into the work environment is, are people gonna be tugging at my extensions and are people gonna be making comments? And I was having a conversation with one of my friends actually over the weekend where I was saying that it's taken me, I literally haven't had braids, obviously I've got braids in my hair now, but I haven't had braids in my hair since um, year eight at school. And it was literally because I came back from Gambia um, and these two people were, um, what would they call me, Betty Spaghetti? And then indirectly, in the back of my mind, um, I just haven't had braids since, yeah. since last year, so until I was 27 years old. Um, and I've said this before um, in, an, in another interview, but there is absolutely no way that I would have had braids on The Apprentice. I just wouldn't have. Yeah. Mm. There's just no way. And it sounds bad to say, but, and I also don't think I would have been accepted on The Apprentice if I had braids, because I think there was a very particular brand yeah. that they were looking for and a very particular look. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was pitching a fashion business and I was into all these pencil dresses and stuff. Um, but I do feel like black women overall in the conversation of mental health specifically are very much an afterthought. And I know that there's so many different groups that are an afterthought. And it's always easy to kind of say, you know, your own group. Yeah. But even, you know, statistically, we know that black women have the highest um, rate of um, depression and, and other mental illnesses. And it's just not brought to the forefront. You know, it seems as if when we talk about women's mental health, we just talk about women's mental health overall. And that's where the whole intersectionality yeah. um, uh, discussion comes in, because really, if black women have the highest ra um, rates of all of these things, why are we not making it a priority? Um, and I think that um, in the workplace, better understanding of black women's needs in particular and microaggressions that may seem trivial to other people but do actually um, have an effect. I think the space for black women to be able to speak and be themselves without the fear of being aggressive because or being seen see, um, perceived as aggressive. Because yeah. I think a lot of employers don't realise that overall all it does is hinder confidence and then therefore productivity if you don't mm -hmm. feel like you can be outward with your opinions and, and who you are and to answer the second bit of your question what do i do for my mental health uh weighted blanket <laughs> so good I, I so good it's so good so 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 good i don't use it all the time but i feel like whenever i'm feeling really exhausted and overwhelmed or have a bit of anxiety or like done something that's really nerve wracking. It really helps me. Um, and to be honest, YouTube videos as well. So I'm a, a Catholic, I'm Christian and TD Jakes on YouTube. I just feel like he's my personal therapist. Um, but I think I'm a type of person who responds well to, to audio. Yeah. So anything that's kind of motivational, that's why I'm always sharing bible scriptures on my instagram story dom <laughs> every now and again you can always tell when i'm going through it when i've done three or four in a row and um, but yeah just just little things like that i think hearing positive affirmations really helped me personally hmm.
You have any tips to share? Like any you tips that help for you? Me? Yeah. Understanding is a big one. I think um I think also just asking women. I think just asking the question. Yeah. Uh, it's such a huge thing. Just asking, just acting like you care is a big step. Then the understanding can be reached. And I also think different people need different things. So it's not a it's not a one solution. Well. Yeah, exactly. One size fits all solution. Um, but for me personally, with my mental, mental well-being, I need something physical. So I usually need to like go for a walk. I try to eat well. I like to run. Um, just something that gets me out of my head and into my body and really appreciative of my body helps a lot. And I think especially as a black woman, that helps a lot. And just like loving on myself. So like taking baths and I have like luxurious lotions and I just like really try to just like nourish and like love on myself, you know, so that I'm just like glistening and just like, you know, like I start that. It's like, I just have these moments where like, I just feel amazing. Um, and then I do therapy, um, huge advocate for therapy. Definitely. If you can, it if you can find someone you like and hydrate and one thing i also want to say is if you if you have a doctor who prescribes you meds like there's a stigma i think against taking meds which i used to have and now i really want to step away from that because i think if something if something works for you do it yeah. if it's not causing <laughs> harm if it works for you just do it and take care of yourself mm -hmm. big up therapy yeah she did not say just do it in the, the phrase where we are getting no money and I am a three-stripe guy. So there we Stripe go. Stripe silver checks. <laughs> Phenomenal. That was... That was excellent. An enlightening conversation and I'm feeling... I'm feeling full. Mm. I'm feeling full. I feel angry, but I'm feeling hopeful. Mm. This is it. I feel like I've had a therapy session. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we started the podcast, Joanna. Therapy is expensive, oh, man. This is free-ish. And, <laughs> I mean, yeah. and the discoveries that you just make in here too. Like, I'm, I mean, it just feels good to hear people reflecting your own experiences, even when you feel like there are differences that separate you more. But the yeah. reality is like, there's some commonality in our experience as humans as yeah. people thank you for your time joanna yeah thank you so much man thank you so much yes thank you dom cheers kids thank you alana friends thank you and we out